This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Tragedy of American Science, From Truman to Trump by Clifford D. Connor. The tragedy of American science is that its direction is determined by private profit rather than by the desire to improve the human condition. As a result, Connor argues, big science has been irredeemably corrupted by big money. The corruption threatens the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, and the medicines we take. The tragedy of American science explores how the U.S. economy's addiction to military spending distorts and deforms science by making it overwhelmingly subservient to military interests. While the underlying problems may appear intractable, Connor compellingly argues that replacing the current science-for-profit system with a science-for-human-needs system is not an impossible utopian dream. But to get there, we'll need to grapple with this important history. The Tragedy of American Science from Truman to Trump by Clifford D. Connor. Out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today's carceral state is, of course, rooted in a long and foundational history of domestic American racism. What you might not know, however, is that our police system is also a product of Cold War U.S. imperialism. That is the topic of a new book by my guest today, Stuart Schrader. Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing. Beginning in the 1950s and accelerating in the 60s, the U.S. made police training and assistance a core feature of counterinsurgency across the decolonizing third world. Overseas models, tested out by a government agency called the Office of Public Safety from South Vietnam to Guatemala, were then transplanted into the domestic war on crime launched in the late 60s. It is a remarkable and eye-opening story. Schrader writes, quote, The familiar widespread critique of police turns on its historical connection to racial oppression. Police grew alongside chattel slavery as an institution in the United States concerned with preventing rebellion, self-emancipation, and even basic black sociality. It blossomed into a profession due to ruling class demands for the control of restive minoritized groups with the advance of industrial capitalism and Jim Crow racial segregation. But Schrader shows that the full story of our state's repressive apparatus ranges beyond breaking strikes and slave patrols. Indeed, it turns out that it's hard to find a neat foreign or domestic origin point when looking for the roots of American policing. Quote, the standard U.S. big city police techniques that police advisors took abroad with them after World War II had themselves been imported from the theater of colonial counterinsurgency on the Tropic of Cancer at the turn of the century, if not the so-called Indian Wars and the counter-guerrilla campaigns of the Civil War. Schrader's book makes it clear that the causal arrows are heading in every direction. The U.S. occupation of Germany and Japan after World War II shaped models that were then exported around the world, 
and then back to the United States. Prior to that, quote, the very institution of centralized professional command and geographic divisions of patrol, which was crucial for professionalization to break the linkages between political ward bosses and police officers in their wards, drew on army counterinsurgency, particularly in the Philippines. So from westward expansion to the antebellum south to centuries of war, the construction of the very divide between the domestic and the foreign in this settler colonial empire's use of state coercion was always fuzzy because the border is always provisional and expanding. Military action and policing were never neatly contained categories. As the 9-11 Commission report declared, quote, the American homeland is the planet. We see that very clearly today with Trump deploying Department of Homeland Security officers to Portland and likely other cities nationwide. Lo and behold, an agency dedicated to stopping terrorists and securing the border is being used to brutally repress domestic dissent. What's perhaps most surprising about Schrader's book is that it shows how our present-day monstrous policing system grew out of pushes for reform, both here and abroad. As the U.S. competed with the Soviet Union to win over decolonizing third-world countries, military force alone was too blunt and spectacularly brutal an instrument. Policing was a solution. At home, as black people staged riots and uprisings and disruptive protest, the absolutely murderous police response that prevailed created a crisis for the liberal state's legitimacy. And so new policing strategies for maintaining unrest, imposing order, were imported from counterinsurgency wars abroad through the Office of Public Safety. The head of that office, police reformer Byron Engel, put it like so, quote, The communists have long experience in utilizing disturbances, riots, terrorism as political action tools. As a consequence, we have put a lot of emphasis on non-lethal riot control. We have found there are many principles and concepts which apply, whether it is in Asia, Africa, or South America. Perhaps those same principles would apply in the United States. And so they did. The Office of Public Safety served as a model for the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, or LEAA, created in 1968, which used a mass infusion of federal dollars to transform American policing and kickstart the war on crime, and then mass incarceration. This created a new police system and carceral state to discipline and warehouse a new population in American life, systematically marginalized and unemployed black and Latino people in urban centers permanently excluded from the labor market. The carceral state was the security guarantor of the new political economic system created by deindustrialization, neoliberalism, the rise of the new right, suburbanized metropolitan resegregation, and the destruction of the New Deal order. It wasn't just that federal law enforcement and local departments grew in power side by side, but that cops also emerged as an independent political constituency that wielded independent power. Schrader writes, quote, The effort to modernize policing at home was the essence of the war on crime. But professionalization also unleashed police, allowing them to become advocates of the war on crime. 
With old ties to partisan political machines sundered, police became self-interested, unaccountable political actors unto themselves. Once politically independent and professionalized, police became better able to mobilize as self-interested, decisive political actors who were impossible to ignore. Note that today it's not just that law and order is a cornerstone of conservative politics. Police as a group of actual people and as an iconic social ideal have become a core political constituency of and political identity for Trumpism, this country's angry and embattled thin blue line of reaction. Black radicals in the 60s and 70s understood the relationship between U.S. empire abroad and what they called internal colonialism at home. It was a universalist refusal of the divide between the domestic and the foreign, an internationalism that is far too rare today. Interestingly, police reformers and counterinsurgency experts of the era likewise rejected methodological nationalism. They took in the entirety of the global situation on a single analytical plane. The upshot, writes Schrader, is that, quote, to dismantle the carceral state, the national security state will also have to be dismantled. If police reformers have understood their task to be refining policing so as to disarm revolutionary exhortations and neutralize radical movements all over the globe, then the purpose of reformism at home becomes clearer. To weaken the hold of police reform on the imagination, in response to every outrageous encounter between police and policed, contemporary police reform as a global project of U.S. power will have to be constrained. In other words, reform won't do. Defund police is a powerful call because it attacks the war on crime and carceral state at one of its foundational points, the size and scope of policing. As I wrote recently in Jacobin, quote, This uprising is attacking the neoliberal settlement at its racist and securitized core, winning support for the demand to defund police and reinvest in basic services. The decades-long rollout of the security state displaced class conflict. The current movement reignites it, demanding a state that funds care instead of repression. Before we get started, briefly... You are listening to this episode, which, like all Dick episodes, has no paywall. It is free to all, regardless of your ability to pay, because those of you who can afford to support this podcast do so at patreon.com slash the dig. What is more is that if you contribute at least $10 a month, we will send you a gift of one or more left-wing books in the mail. We have a lot of excellent titles. Perfect for dig listeners like you. If you have not done so yet, please support the podcast that you listen to by contributing what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thank you, and here is Stuart Schrader, the Associate Director of the Program in Racism, Immigration, and Citizenship at John Hopkins University, where he is also a lecturer. He is the author of Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing, from University of California Press. (music) 
Stuart Schrader. Welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. Let's start with your overall argument before we get into a lot of specifics. You write, quote, The expansion of incarceration and policing that began at home in the late 1960s grew out of an expansion of policing capacities around the globe that the United States stewarded to prevent communist revolution. Racism, movements to counter it, and their repression have, of course, existed throughout U.S. history. The war on crime, however, emerged specifically in the context of an effort to use police to manage global decolonization. It's a really interesting argument. It's an argument that is basically entirely new to me. What story do conventional and even other dissident accounts of the war on crime's origins tell? And how does the archive that you've studied complicate that by placing it in the context of the U.S. Cold War empire's global counterinsurgency program? Arguments about the war on crime take place against the backdrop of larger arguments about the legacy of the 1960s, where I think some people think that the social movements of the 1960s in some ways went wrong, and they led to the rise of Nixon, the rise of Reagan, you know, the, the New Deal coalition falling apart. The conservative take on this would be that the war on crime was a legitimate response to a genuine problem of increasing crime, increasing social disorder. And, you know, voters demanded this and and the state responded accordingly, even if I think among conservatives, there's there's some skepticism that the ultimate outcome of mass incarceration was actually what voters wanted or was appropriate. You do see this argument coming from historians. You see it also coming from people who were active players in this drama, whether, you know, policymakers or movement people, white activists from SDS who who went on to become intellectuals. I think the more left-wing take on the war on crime was not that it was actually what people wanted, but in fact, um, you know, what voters wanted, but in fact, it was what elites wanted. And specifically, it represented the dream of Southern conservative Democrats in some ways, as well as a broader coalition of people who were interested in getting tough on crime, as they called it. But what they really meant was getting tough on black social movements and repudiating the civil rights struggle. So the first interpretation that I've laid out is the backlash formulation. And the second is the frontlash formulation. And, and, and that term I, I take from, from the scholar Beshla Weaver. And I think that in addition to the idea that, that there were elites pushing for a more harsh response to the civil rights movement that came to be as the war on crime, there's another argument that goes along with it, which is that the wars on poverty and crime were themselves intertwined, but that the war on crime ultimately en- ended up undermining the war on poverty. And the whole dream of alleviating some of the suffering that was embedded in the Lyndon Johnson 
presidency's, you know, gamut of policies that we refer to as the Great Society and the War on Poverty, you know, that, that this this dream really, you know, fell apart or crashed on the shoals of, of the crime problem. What I'm trying to do in my work is, of course, I'm, I'm in broad agreement with the front lash argument. But what I'm trying to do is change the perspective a little bit. Whereas the backlash argument focuses on voters, the frontlash argument, I think, focuses mainly on elected officials, neither one of them really takes into great account what the law enforcement figures themselves wanted in this period. And I think that paying attention to law enforcement figures themselves, the experts of policing and of incarceration and just generally people who are participating in debates about crime shows us that they shaped the front lash. Uh, the front lash, you know, could have taken multiple forms, but the form it took of a war on crime and specifically the 1968 Omnibus, Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act, that was not preordained. But police themselves wanted to get more resources, and they were advocating for uh, increasing federal intervention into law enforcement. And they provided some of the, the, the very vocabulary, like, you know, terms like war, war on crime. So focusing on, on law enforcement figures gives us a, a slightly different perspective from these two kind of dominant narratives about what the war on crime's origins are. And I think that it also helps us to push back somewhat on something that I see, you know, creeping into arguments about the war on poverty, which is that the war on poverty had solutions to social problems that the war on crime took away. I'm, I'm skeptical of that. And I think that when you look at U.S. empire, it becomes clear how unsustainable this argument is. It's not that the war on crime didn't you know, supersede the war on poverty. I think ultimately that is true. But actually that there's, they were so deeply intertwined in conception and in techniques. So looking at law enforcement experts helps us to understand that they themselves wanted increased federal intervention in policing, in law enforcement, in solving problems of social disorder that were understood as being deeply intertwined with um, the gains of the civil rights movement, as well as the more radical forms of protest of the 1960s. Law enforcement experts, what I show in my book, were thinking globally about these problems and they were deployed globally to solve these problems. Law enforcement experts who used phrases like the war on crime were oftentimes using them to describe what they were doing in places like Brazil as much as they were using them to describe what they were doing in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. And so once we put a focus on law enforcement experts themselves and their own political demands and desires, we see that they are actually operating on a much broader scale and have a much broader scope, which 
opens the door to then thinking about how the war on crime itself is an outgrowth of a broader imperial project of the United States that is centered on disseminating law enforcement resources and expertise globally. You write, quote, the carceral state had bipartisan origins. Its proximate catalyst was the demand to reform policing. What was the mid-century crisis in the U.S. state's coercive power at home and abroad that provided the impetus to reform police both here and globally? The reform effort in policing grew out of two crises. The first crisis was a crisis of corruption that was widespread and widely understood as growing out of the municipal political economy where machines ran the the city and police worked for political machines. And this corruption, this graft, ultimately led to police not only losing legitimacy, but losing effectiveness in some of their other tasks besides uh, simply, you know, collecting uh, graft and, and running, running, you know, patronage networks. They increasingly were unable to respond to the political demands of other types of elites who were not necessarily embedded in the machine. Um, this means that, that police were not able to keep control on, on the labor movement um, and, and increasingly were also struggling to enforce the color line and were facing protests. So this leads to the second crisis, the crisis of legitimacy for police in the United States provoked by their own aggressive enforcement of the color line. This crisis of legitimacy leads to social movements demanding racial justice. And some of these, of course, are quite left-wing and are, you know, linked up to the Communist Party, and others are, are of course, at a distance from, from the left. But ultimately, these two crises lead police experts to try to rethink policing. And this leads to the professionalization era in the middle of the 20th century. And on the one hand, the professionalization era was designed to take police out from under the control of the political machines. And on the other hand, it was designed to make them more operationally effective. Um, so that meant not only, you know, introducing, you know, new technologies and new forms of, of training, um, but also administrative reforms that, that would, would help ensure their political independence. Now, the idea was if this creates more legitimacy for police, it will also lead to less criticism from below, from the movements. And police leaders, particularly coming out of World War II, are very conscious of the ways that they will be seen as not reproducing some of the violations of civil rights that had characterized policing in the first part of the 20th century. The war creates a new range of possibilities for social movements to demand justice, new vocabularies to demand justice, and police start listening to that and try to fix some of the problems within their own house in response. How did policing emerge to help maintain and manage a color line that was being formally abolished 
at home through the civil rights movement abroad, through decolonization struggles, by striking a, a balance between force and I think this more subtle production of new human subjects and order that you write about. It was really fascinating for me when I was doing this research to find that some of these police uh, experts and leaders that I'm talking about were speaking in ways that were almost indistinguishable from what some of the most prominent intellectuals of racial liberalism were speaking. So Gunnar Myrdal is the most, most famous example. He writes The American Dilemma, of course, with a, a huge retinue of colleagues and, and researchers. And The American Dilemma outlines the dominant ideology of racial liberalism over the, the coming decades. And the idea behind it essentially is that the United States will ascend to and assure its global leadership by progressively overcoming its problems, longstanding problems with racism. And one of the ways it can do this is basically through a sort of sleight of hand that, that Myrdal and, and the racial liberals engage in, which is to redefine racism in a highly individualized way. It redefines racism as being about individual sentiment, about personal bigotry, and basically removes from the, the scope of the conversation what we would today call more structural dimensions of racism, more, you know, collective and group-based or, or spatially based uh, forms of racism. Police leaders who, who, who I'm looking at in, in this very moment are saying some very similar things. And one of the ways that they talk about this is explicitly by saying that if police in the United States are seen to be engaging in racially bigoted behavior, which by which they mean, you know, attacking and, and brutalizing individual African-American people, that this will play badly on the global stage. Police leaders in the United States were quite conscious. I was surprised to find they were quite conscious of how the United States appeared to a global audience. And we already know from, from a range of scholarship that uh, the United States State Department and other you know, elites and diplomats were concerned about the, the U.S. image abroad, particularly in the context of the Cold War, and tried to press for reforms and, and changes to the really awful forms of, of racism in, in the South and under Jim Crow so that the United States could win adherence among people of color in the decolonizing parts of the globe. Because the Soviet Union could point at Birmingham and say, what democracy? Or point at racist immigration laws and say, you have racist immigration laws, how your your promise of a democratic alternative to Soviet despotism is, is an empty one. That's exactly right. And police echoed this. And I thought this was so odd and surprising because, of course, we would assume that police want to be unleashed, that they want to be able to engage in whatever types of behaviors might be necessary to maintain the color line. But in fact, some of these police experts I look at um, are really trying to rethink the color line 
and they're trying to rethink the police role in maintaining it. And they believe that it's possible for there to be an accommodation between U.S. liberalism and democracy and the global power of the United States through police reform and professionalization. Police can be used as the first line of defense, which is a term that I use throughout the book, drawing from these, these figures. They can be used as the first line of defense against crime and against subversion in order to protect democracy and ensure formal equality. But the problem, of course, with this racially liberal viewpoint is that they're not willing to question the underlying structural foundational forms of inequality that U.S. power, both at home and abroad, is wrapped up in creating and and fostering. The central argument of your book is about how the wars abroad influenced policing at home, or more, perhaps more accurately put, how wars abroad was actually really policing abroad often that ricocheted back to informed policing at home. And the institution at the core of your story is the Office of Public Safety, OPS, which I'm guessing most of my listeners have never heard of. I had never heard of it. It was located within the Agency for International Development, AID. And OPS provided counterinsurgency policing assistance to police in at least 52 countries with officers from 77 countries attending their training academy. You write that the, that the, the new left accused OPS of, of teaching torture. But, but you write, quote, from the U.S. intelligence perspective, far more important than lessons in how to commit violent acts were lessons in specialized technical knowledge and data management to surveil and target populations, along with supply of filing systems, fingerprinting materials, binoculars, cameras, and other mundane items. What was OPS and Was there more like coldly clinical institution and systems building? Was that perhaps more consequential ultimately in facilitating repression than its critics at the time understood? I think that's right. The Office of Public Safety was at its core a capacity building institution. The idea was to build the capacity of other sovereign states so that they would be able to work as proxies for the United States and for U.S. geopolitical goals, primary among them containing communism. And therefore, if if the capacity of other states were increased and bolstered, the United States wouldn't have to get more directly involved in those countries. The cases where war breaks out and the United States sends troops or airplanes to to drop bombs, those are failures of this counterinsurgency strategy. The idea of using police, which the Office of Public Safety oversaw, was to prevent these more difficult to control politically volatile situations that required uh, military force. The Office of Public Safety was created in 1962, and it lasted until uh, 1974. They, they turned out the lights finally in, in the International Police Academy in D.C. in the middle of 1975. Precursors of the Office of Public Safety came into existence 
in the middle of the 1950s. Under Eisenhower in, in 54. That's right. When the Office of Public Safety was created in 1962, the idea behind it was basically to consolidate some disparate programs that were not very well coordinated in different parts of the globe and put them all under one roof, under one director, and under one overall budget line. And that budget line uh, couldn't be cut by anybody else within the Agency for International Development, which made it quite unique. So the director was a guy named Byron Engel, and he had been doing this work of assisting police going back all the way to the, the end of World War II when he went overseas to Japan to, to work in the, the U.S. occupation of Japan on police reform there. Engel was, and, uh, he was a police expert. He was a police reformer. He was also deeply anti-communist, and he worked in the 1950s closely with, with the CIA. And when they created the Office of Public Safety, the idea was to make Engel a somewhat more public figure. Of course, he was not well-known. He did not become you know, somebody who, who was getting magazine profiles per se, but he, he was public. He was overt. He was not working in the shadows. Office of the Office of Public Safety in general worked openly. It worked with sovereign governments. The United States, uh, you know, diplomats from the United States signed agreements with diplomats from other countries to arrange these police assistance programs that the Office of Public Safety oversaw. And some of them were relatively short-lived, and some of them lasted for quite a long time. And they did provide some cover to CIA agents as well. Exactly. The Office of Public Safety employed some police experts who, if we believe what they say, had no idea at the time that some of their colleagues were working for the CIA. They really thought their job was simply to, you know, improve the traffic flow in the, the growing cities of, you know, Bolivia or Thailand. Uh, meanwhile, the guy at the next desk over was actually employed by the CIA and was, you know, working under the, the cover of the Agency for International Development. But ultimately, even if the public safety advisors didn't know who was, you know, writing everybody's paycheck at the end of the day, the work they did all fed into the intelligence apparatus of the United States, as, as you suggested. What these police were doing, police advisors were doing, was collecting data and information about the police capabilities of other countries, and as I said, trying to improve those, those capabilities. But they were also in the process collecting data on the movements on the ground. So the reports that they would file, and of course they had to file monthly reports that went from you know, their desk in country X all the way to Washington, D.C., perhaps to Byron Engel's desk or one of his subordinates, and then they would make their way to intelligence agencies, to the National Security Council, and even potentially to you know, the Oval Office. So the intelligence reports would say there was a protest in, in a city in, in country X. The communist movement engaged in these types of, of maneuvers and behaviors during this protest, and the police responded in such and such a way. And so you got both sides of the picture 
the, the, the ability of the, the state to control uh, rebellions or, or, or political mobilizations, and you got a picture of the, the size and strength of the, the grassroots mobilization itself. And so this is the type of work that they were doing that, that fed into U.S. In intelligence gathering. At the same time, when they found that in, in this protest, the, the police were overwhelmed because they had communication problems. Well, then the recommendation would be, okay, we need to improve Country X's communication ability among its officers on the street. Let's introduce new radios. Let's introduce you know, new teletypes, various types of, of technologies that would improve their ability to coordinate and activate their, their forces. One thing that really jumped out at me is that police assistance, overseas police assistance, was a thoroughly democratic project. It was Kennedy who defeated Nixon, who was Eisenhower's vice president in the 1960 election. And you write that he pushed a model that combined policing and development in a sort of explicit political contrast to his predecessor, Republican predecessor, Eisenhower's emphasis on military force. But throughout the story that you tell, these turf wars and disputes continue between advocates of policing among supporters of OPS and whatnot, and then other people who prioritized military special ops and this idea of fighting rural guerrillas with guerrilla-style tactics. How did OPS emerge from these debates over counterinsurgency in, in Vietnam and elsewhere? And how did those debates become expressed as a, as a partisan or ideological debate throughout the period and throughout the entire Cold War? The Eisenhower administration had a vision of the Cold War that centered on nuclear weapons, on the one hand, the, the nuclear stalemate that, that came into to being, and covert action, on the other hand, you know, which was, of course, you know, spearheaded by the CIA. And the, the coups that, that we know well in Guatemala or Iran you know, exemplify that, that covert action side. Now, it's certainly the case that after those coups, police assistance followed. Guatemala and Iran were, were big recipients of police assistance, and figures like Engel in, in the 1950s were overseeing that. But ultimately, this led to, uh, particularly the coup in Guatemala, led to a belief within the CIA that that type of covert action could succeed in many places. And, you know, scholars have written wonderfully about how the CIA took the wrong lessons from the coup in Guatemala, and they tried to replicate it in, in other places. And, and the most notorious example of that was the Bay of Pigs invasion, which, of course, came in the, the early part of the Kennedy administration, but was really a, an idea of the Eisenhower administration. Yeah, and you, and you, and you write that these uh, special ops enth enthusiasts, what Bay of Pigs showed that they didn't realize it, that they didn't appreciate, you know, they were obsessed with kind of reading Mao and studying the legendary North Vietnamese general Yap, but they ignored their basic insight that the guerrilla war could only succeed if it had local support. Exactly. These covert operators believed that it was possible to roll back communism, not simply just contain it. And the way to roll it back was to engage in something like guerrilla warfare, but in an offensive way. They would send guerrillas into these countries with the goal of subverting and undermining their governments. And this was 
a huge disaster. It was a disaster almost every time it occurred. And in the process, this ended up discrediting some of these officials. And ultimately, although the police assistance program had been initiated under Eisenhower, it was really kept on the back burner through the end of the, the Eisenhower presidency. But then once the Bay of Pigs happened, a whole range of figures within the you know, intelligence and national security world were discredited. It was just such a disaster. And Kennedy himself was, was so uh, embarrassed and humiliated and angry that it allowed some other figures to try to fill the vacuum that was left when when these discredited figures really had to had to you know hide their heads in shame and and some of them you know left left their positions entirely so this led to a guy called Robert Comer seizing the initiative and Comer had known Engel blowtorch bob that's right Robert Comer, also known as Blowtorch Bob by <laughs> people who knew him because of his uh, his irascible tendencies and his unwillingness to take no for an answer. Comer knew Engel th- throughout the 1950s. And Comer entered the National Security Council under Kennedy and after the Bay of Pigs really just seized the moment. And he said, look, let's stop with this this covert action nonsense, which is just not doing us any favors, and let's bolster police assistance. Because the real way that we're going to contain communism is to implement these counter-subversive, counter-insurgency policing programs across the globe. We're already doing it to some degree. Let's do it better. Let's have greater coordination. And I think that this aligned with Kennedy's overall vision of his foreign policy, which on the one hand was trying to become more active and interventionist, and interventionist in the sense of providing development assistance and you know reaching out and trying to develop the, the diplomatic ties with other countries to prevent them from going over to, to the side of the communists. And so police assistance fit perfectly within this because it was itself development. The idea was developing police. And it also did not have this taint that came from the covert action side, which made it seem undemocratic and ultimately illegitimate in such a way that it needed to hide its purpose. And too counter-revolutionary for a moment of revolutionary decolonization. Yeah. Whereas policing was a better fit for for like Alliance for Progress type programs. Policing fit well with the overall initiative to provide development aid for agriculture, for big public works, for education. Policing was just one further component of this overall suite of development initiatives that would modernize these societies. And that was central to the Kennedy administration's goals. The Kennedy administration, both President Kennedy and his brother Robert and and many others around him, they were all enamored with the idea of development as the antidote to communism. They, They were certain about the necessity of defeating communism, but they were also quite sure that 
the types of behaviors that that the CIA had engaged in with the Eisenhower administration were not doing the United States any favors. Ultimately, those types of behaviors never really went away because there were very powerful people within the uh, intelligence bureaucracy who still maintained, uh, you know, kept kept their eye on the possibilities of covert action. But the possibility of putting a lot of resources into police assistance accorded with the overall Kennedy administration orientation toward third world countries. Interestingly, Comer and and his and the whole city policing model got their moment of embarrassment later on as well with the Tet Offensive, this massive 1968 North Vietnamese assault on major South Vietnamese urban centers that was really the beginning of the end of the war. North Vietnamese General Yap apocryphally said afterward, quote, we learned from Detroit to go to the cities. What did Yap learn that Comer apparently didn't? Comer is one of these classic, tragic figures of the American elite in the sense that I think he knew that everything he did was probably not going to work, and yet he did it anyway. He was not a stupid person, but he ultimately showed his loyalty to Johnson by continuing to push for the war effort in Vietnam, even after he had already recognized that the war effort was likely to be an almost impossible task. And you can look at the Office of Public Safety, which he, he supported you know, its creation. You can look at the Office of Public Safety to understand exactly why. He wanted to send police assistance to dozens of countries around the globe, third world countries, in order to prevent the possibility of the outbreak of a guerrilla insurgency and a, 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 the growth of a really committed revolutionary movement. Police assistance was supposed to prevent that. In South Vietnam, it did not prevent that. And by the time Johnson sends him to Vietnam to be his, his basically his main man, his pacification czar, the war is is at its it's almost at its height, and the United States is not doing well. So so Comer ends up going to oversee both the you know civilian development and the security side, um, ultimately under what becomes known as CORDS, civil operation and operations and rural development support. And Comer's whole deal is promoting policing as a way to prevent. Vietnam, but here he is having to deal with with Vietnam as it exists as an incredibly bloody, disastrously proceeding hot war. That's exactly right. But he didn't want to ever let Lyndon Johnson down, I think. And ultimately, because of that, he did, (laughs) because he kept providing these rosy assessments of how well things were going to go. And the most classic example of this is that literally on the night before the the Tet Offensive breaks out, um, and this is something that, you know, is, is a well-known story that, you know, people like De- David Halberstam wrote about, um, you know, Comer shows up at this party where all these U.S. officials and elites are, you know, celebrating the, the new year. And he shows up wearing this uh, orange flame retardant coat. And the joke is that, 
you know, because his nickname is Blowtorch Bob, uh, you know, he has to wear this this flame retardant coat in in order to you know not not himself burst into flames. <laughs> so he's 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 making you know he's he's making these assessments of the progress of the war and and then even after the Tet offensive uh, has has begun he continues to say that the you know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel that's the famous phrase but i think he knew that that was ultimately unlikely and part of the reason was that the war had become so militarized in the early part of the 1960s his whole initiative, strategic initiative for the United States was to avoid militarizing these counterinsurgency situations, use police, use civilian authority in order to keep control of the communist movement. Because if you use the military, then things are likely to spin out of control, become extremely violent, and incite the very revolutionary impulses that the United States is so worried about in the first place. And to kind of emphasize the, the hegemony side of things rather than the raw coercion side. That's right. And that, which is interesting because I didn't realize that pa what pacification meant. I, th I have always thought of it as meaning just blunt suppression. But in fact, pacification was meant to be a contrast to blunt suppression. It was about the subtle exercise of coercive power alongside economic development. That's right. And encouraging political participation even. Yeah. William Colby, who goes on to be the director of the CIA, but he was actually Comer's successor running Cords. Colby has this, this wonderful line somewhere where he, he says that, you know, pacification is a misnomer because actually what pacification means is activation. It's activity at the grassroots. It's political participation by the grassroots. The idea is we can defeat communism if we give the, the peasants, the dispossessed, some tools for their own economic uplift, and they will then use these tools and they will use them democratically. They will say, you know, they will have the ability to say, this is the, the goal we have and we want to reap the rewards once the goal is achieved. And that is what pacification looks like. Now, the, there's another dimension to it, of course, which is the, the security dimension. When the people at the grassroots fail to achieve their goal or when they change their mind or when they refuse entirely and they, you know, they put down the shovels and stop digging the, the trenches that, the, you know, the United States has given them the shovels, but they're doing the labor of digging the trenches, right? If they stop, well, then there's going to be a well-equipped police force there to say, hey, you have to hold up your end of the bargain and you have to prove that you're quote-unquote pacified by your active participation in this political project, this economic project. And, and in reality, the security aspect sort of always automatically overwhelmed all of the other, however sincerely believed, objectives of pacification. And one, you have this one powerful example from, from, from Guatemala. You write, quote, one of AID's programs in Guatemala consisted of identify, in identifying and training people who exhibited potential to become leaders who could advocate on behalf of their villages. AID studied other outcomes of, the training pro, of this training program into the 1980s. The findings were stark. Up to two-thirds of the trainees had been killed by security forces well after Operación Limpieza concluded. 
You continue, quote, The inescapable paradox of prioritizing security as a precondition for development was that the institutions called upon to effect such orderly change, whether military or civil police, tended to defend entrenched interest and resist institutional transformation, although U.S. assistance was intended to transform them. Counterinsurgency truncated the menu of political options available in aid-recipient countries, even in the absence of active guerrilla insurgency. How did this idea that security was the precondition for development emerge, and how did it ultimately undermine the purported, and again, by some of these people, certainly sincerely held goal of advancing development? I think there were debates about whether security came first or development came first. But ultimately, what happened in practice, you know, those were intellectual debates. In practice, security always had to come first because the idea was no development project could succeed in the absence of security. Now, what did that mean? Quite literally, it meant, you know, if, if there were communists or, you know, left-wing radicals on the scene, um, then the scene was insecure, right? But the fear was that if we give development aid to, you know, to the, to the grassroots, we being uh, U.S. development officials, if we give development aid to, to the grassroots and there are communists on the scene, they might take advantage of that and we might end up actually feeding the insurgency. The resources might fall into the hands of the insurgents. So security as a precondition then meant that development would have to proceed in these highly constrained ways. And the Strategic Hamlets program, which, which is a, a kind of famous example from South Vietnam, I think really typifies this because it was supposed to be a showcase of grassroots participatory development, but with a tall fence around the village or, or the hamlet, uh, you know, and barbed wire and, and armed sentries uh, guarding over it. And those armed sentries not only were, were looking to the outside to make sure that, you know, no communists were trying to infiltrate and get in, but they were also looking inside to make sure that everybody inside was being loyal and wasn't perhaps, you know, exhibiting too many sympathies with, um, you know, left-wing political ideas. And, and again, some of those could become evident uh, simply by refusing to do the work that they were told they had to do. So if they weren't doing the work, that was evidence of insecurity. So the lack of action on some of these development goals ultimately, you know, becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of um, seeming like insecurity. And when there's insecurity, well, then development necessarily is an impossible goal, right? And security becomes the primary problem to be dealt with. And I think we see this in counterinsurgency theory and certainly counterinsurgency practice all the way up through to the present. This focus on the security objectives as the primary goal and the failure to meet those security objectives as evidence that the, the development goals are never going to be achieved and maybe weren't achievable in the first place. Let's talk about the sort of fundamental framework guiding these ideas, which is modernization theory, which is important for your book and really important for understanding a lot about the 20th century. It, it was a formally race-neutral academic theory that explained the hierarchy of the world system and legitimated U.S. interference and control of the third world countries. That's not really explaining 
how modernization theory would describe itself, but it's, it is what it did. And you write, quote, counterinsurgency was the means, according to LBJ National Security Advisor Walter Rostow, of ensuring that modernization was not channeled into extremist appeals to redirect this revolution, inasmuch as scavengers of the modernization process aimed to capitalize on discontent and disarray. Although structural functionalism had little to say about revolution or insurgency or their prevention, in Rostow's view, insurgency was necessarily related to disequilibrium. Infiltrating revolutionaries and subversives took advantage of disequilibrium ushered into third world social life by the frenzy of modernization, which entailed urban migration and new socio-spatial morphologies, technological change and novelties of consumption, emergent mass sources of information, reconfigured gender relations, the endowments and expectations of sovereign citizenship, and the dissolution of customary economic ties via capitalist-oriented commerce and labor relations. That's really fascinating, including in part because this U.S. national security analysis was ironically not very different from the communist analysis. Communists did indeed see an opportunity with all that was solid melting into air across the third world. Explain modernization theory and how how it fit in or related to that other academic theory you mentioned in passing, structural functionalism, and how that all shaped U.S. counterinsurgency at home and abroad. Modernization theory was the dominant intellectual paradigm in development studies, in thinking about the the so-called third world uh, in the United States in this moment. Modernization theory as you rightly point out, has some similar diagnoses as some of the more wooden forms of communist theory. And Walt Rostow, who writes the kind of most popular version of, of modernization theory, his, his book's subtitle is uh, A Non-Communist Manifesto. So he very clearly <laughs> sees what he's doing as providing a rejoinder to communism. And you're right that both communist radicals and the modernization theorists believe that the kind of frenzy of the development of you know, what we would call the, 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 the rise of, of capitalism or the, the intensification of, of capitalist social relations, or you know, we, we could use you know, technical terms from Marx like you know, formal and real subsumption, you know, whatever vocabulary you choose to, to deploy to understand this, it's certainly the case that lives are changing before people's very eyes. Political systems are changing, but also everyday life is changing in, in this period of, of the 1950s and 1960s. And what the modernization theorists wanted to do was harness these potentially revolutionary impulses toward capitalism, toward, uh, you know, uh, consumption-based economies, and of course, toward political allegiance with the United States. On the other hand, the communist movements argued that the, the dissolution of social bonds and the, the, the frenzy of, uh, or the maelstrom that, that, that was occurring 
with the intensification of capitalist social relations, you know, was leading to greater levels of exploitation, greater levels of social social alienation, and therefore, you know, a, a revolution in the other direction was the answer. So, you know, there, there's a book about modernization theory titled The Right Kind of Revolution. And I think that's really a good way to characterize it. The Kennedy administration, where modernization had its greatest influence um, through, through figures like Rostow, you know, they, they believed in the possibility of a, you know, revolutionary, revolutionary transformation across the third world, but the revolution would lead to forms of liberal democracy, forms of capitalism, and ultimately, you know, like I said, allegiance with the United States rather than a revolution that would lead to allegiance to, you know, China or the Soviet Union or, or Cuba. And modernization theory as an intellectual paradigm tried to present some models for what the, the different stages of the development of this type of society that would be, you know, consumption heavy and more urbanized and more even cosmopolitan, how would a society get to that? There were stages. And ultimately, you know, many people have argued that the one of the fundamental flaws of modernization theory, not only that these these stages were were too, you know, simplistic and and shorn of, of the relevant, you know, details of of cultural particularities, but also that the end point happened to look quite a lot like the United States. And some of them were more explicit than others. Some of the theorists were more explicit than, than others about how much the end goal of modernization was to create societies around the globe that looked just like, you know, the United States in the 1960s. So taking the United States in the 1960s as the model of, you know, the sort of end stage of all development processes led to some quite bizarre ideas about how to get there. Now, ultimately, when these theorists looked at the United States as the end goal, they saw the United States as a relatively homeostatic situation where the various dimensions of American social life were more or less in balance with one another. The political, the economic, the social, the cultural, all of these factors worked together to create a whole that was relatively even worked and operated quite well. That's the theory. But what's the reality? This is the 1950s coming into the 1960s. The United States is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a society where everything is, is you know, functionally integrated and working well. And even just raising the, the term integrated, which is a you know, central piece of the theory, um, kind of points to what I'm talking about. The United States is dramatically cleaved by deep racial antagonism, by deep forms of racism and inequality across the color line. That's a deep and layered contradiction there because it means that the model that modernization theory is attempting to transpose onto the third world, the American model, is itself not a model of the actual America, but a kind of aspirational liberal fantasy of what America might and should become. That's exactly right. And this is where 
the the role of police in all of this becomes even more interesting and peculiar because if if society is composed of a bunch of different forces that ultimately resolve into an equilibrium. Well, what's the role of the police? I think for these theorists who are not super explicit about the police, but that none of them have any kind of utopian idea that there will be a way to, to get rid of police. Instead, they just, they just accept that police are, are a, a, a relatively natural feature of, of a modern society. So what do police do? Well, they write some of this disequilibrium when it occurs. If there is some type of, of you know, rebellion or, or insurgency, police are going to be tasked with putting it down in order to re-attain homeostasis. And this feeds directly into counterinsurgency theory, because counterinsurgency theory basically argues that insurgency breaks out when some flaw emerges in the homeostasis. And oftentimes it's, it's, it's a vector from outside. It's these subversives, you know, streaming across the border, carrying with them, uh, pamphlets and literature full of, of ideas from, you know, Lenin. And, um, they're probably also, you know, carrying guns, uh, uh, you know, under their other arm, right? So, so that's the, the vector of, of disequilibrium. So using police, using security forces to tamp down on the subversive threat and on the this vector of, of instability is going to restore equilibrium. Now, the, the kind of confusing and challenging piece in all of this is that once again, as I said earlier, modernization itself is creating a, a certain type of disequilibrium. And that's good dis disequilibrium, right, for, for these theorists. It's, it's going to compel people to demand greater democracy, to demand greater access to goods, to demand, you know, economic development. But the worry, of course, is that these demands will feed into the propaganda appeals made by the, the communist subversives who will say, if you don't have enough to eat, if your living situation is not what you like, well, we provide an answer to that. And our answer is our political program. So all of these contending ideas are debated among intellectuals, while in practice, the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration, are providing this development aid and also providing the police aid in order to make sure that these these countries around the globe are provided with the, the, the capabilities to meet the challenge should it arise of, again, the, the communists streaming over the border trying to create, create disequilibrium. And therein lies the contradiction that leads for, to repeat this example, because it's so remarkable, that leads to U.S.-backed security forces in Guatemala murdering the community leaders who the U.S. had trained to develop their country along the lines envisioned by modernization theory. That's exactly right. The United States Agency for International Development in Guatemala, as well as in other places, had the idea of taking some community leaders and giving them forms of, of training in how to achieve new forms of, of economic and, and social development. 
they even use terms that that we would find very familiar in 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 the United States like community development these leaders were meant to disrupt the status quo they were meant to be able to make demands on the political system and say hey we do want greater education we do want um, better health outcomes for our communities we do want greater access to to the market and yet on the other hand the agency for international development is also giving this massive amount of support to the police in Guatemala and of course the military is also supporting the US military is supporting the Guatemalan military and so these 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 development leaders who are meant to be catalysts of economic and social change in Guatemala of course they anger some local power holders. They anger some local elites. And what do those local elites do? Well, they turn to the security forces and they say, the type of disruption that these figures are, are causing is subversive. It's anti-government. It's anti-social. And the police respond with targeted violence. And it's impossible to imagine the thoroughness and and the specificity of that violence without the tools, going back to what we talked about earlier, without the tools that the United States provided to keep tabs, for the police to keep tabs on community members to watch out for and identify who the potential subversives might be. Incredibly, the same dynamic that played out overseas with policing being presented as an alternative to military force gets transplanted to the domestic side, where reform policing was sold as the the solution to overly lethal policing that was only fueling unrest in the streets. Because cops were killing a lot of people in protests. People were, cops were firing live rounds into protests frequently. National Guard was attacking protesters, rioters with fixed bayonets. And a key way to solve this problem and this critical turning point in the rise of the war on crime was the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, the LEAA, which was created by the 1968 Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act, signed into law by LBJ. And this senior federal law enforcement official who, again, like other personalities in your book that are were really important, is likely entirely unknown to my listeners. This, this guy named Arnold Sagalin. He used the OPS, the Office of Public Safety Overseas Policing Grants, as this model for aid to policing that would function in a similar way within the U.S. Federalist, federalist system. What was the LEAA and how did it draw on overseas counterinsurgency? The LEAA is increasingly understood as crucial among historians to the rise of the carceral state and the creation of, of mass incarceration. But in fact, the LEAA spent a great amount of its resources early on on policing. So as you said, in 1968, the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act is signed into law and it creates the LEAA. And there was a, a precursor to the LEAA created in, in 1965, which, which was smaller and, and didn't have you know, nearly as, as wide a reach. That 1965 date is important because in the summer of 1964, there was unrest in black neighborhoods in many places, in Harlem, 
in Rochester, in Philadelphia, and, and several other, other cities. And this unrest was met with harsh violence by the police. Police in general were ill-prepared to deal with the unrest, and then their response intensified and worsened it, very much like what we've witnessed over the past few weeks in the United States. Although the major difference is that in the past few weeks in the United States, the police have not been firing live rounds into the crowds, thank God. Arnold Saglin was a federal law enforcement official. He came out of the milieu of, of police reform that we discussed in the middle of the 20th century. He was a firm believer in police reform. He believed that police legitimacy hinged on reform, on political independence of police, and on the, the technical abilities and, and aptitude of police. It just so happened that in his federal role, um, working for the Treasury Department, actually, he came to meet Byron Engel. Byron Engel took a shine to him, and they became good friends. Sagalin you know, worked alongside uh, Engel and, and, and worked with the Office of Public Safety in his Treasury Department role, because in the Treasury Department, he basically oversaw police training, uh, law enforcement training. We don't tend to think of the Treasury Department as, as containing law enforcement officers, but actually back then it did, and, and still to this day it does. Sagalin, because he's an official working within the United States who has some access to the Johnson White House, he looks at what happens in the summer of 1964, and he's, he sees it as a disaster. Police around the country have utterly failed to control this unrest. And in fact, this unrest is playing out on a global stage once again. He's thinking about the Cold War context, and he's thinking about police violence against everyday uh, black people in the streets of, of cities like you know, New York and, and, and Chicago. And he's saying, you know, this is bad. We need to do something about this. And you write that LBJ sees police violence, not excess black militancy or, or riots as the true threat to his agenda. I think that's right. And I think that's been widely mischaracterized in the backlash literature, that LBJ was somehow scared of black militancy and ultimately the, the black power movement. Now, I, I would not want to imply that he wasn't worried. But in 1964, before he ultimately starts using the term war on crime or war against crime, he's much more concerned at that moment about the way that police are creating legitimacy problems for his government and for governments more broadly. So Sagalin writes a couple of memos that I discovered in the archive that, uh, you know, in some ways really clarified so much to me about the importance of looking at both the foreign and the domestic in a single analytic frame, which is really the, the, the thing that I'm trying to do in this book. Sagalin writes these memos to officials who are, are on the, the kind of, um, you know, crime or, or, or justice side of the Johnson administration, you know, policy advisors. And he says, look, we need to do something about the police in the United States. They are ill-equipped, underprepared, poorly trained 
They don't have enough resources. They're making things worse. So let's take money from Washington and give it to police at the local level. And let's also take expertise and training resources from Washington and give it to police at local level. And lo and behold, I have this perfect blueprint for how to do this. It's called the Office of Public Safety, and we're already doing this in many countries around the globe. Now, ultimately, in, in 1965, when the, when the first federal uh, anti-crime bill passes, it's not exactly uh, a mirror image of the Office of Public Safety. But fast forward a few years, and you get to the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968 and the LEAA, and then I think we can say that in many ways, the LEAA replicates the Office of Public Safety. And one of the crucial ways that it replicates it is by having very little say over how police at the local level actually engage in policing. Instead, it trusts that by giving police new forms of, of equipment, new technologies, new types of training, and access to the kind of most advanced social scientific and, 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 and other you know, scientific studies of, of crime and its deterrence, then police will solve the problem. And of course, the problem is crime, disorder, political rebellion. And that's what the Office of Public Safety did overseas. And of course, the Office of Public Safety overseas could not place onerous conditions on how its aid was used because the whole idea was that these were bilateral agreements between two sovereign nations. The United States has police experts. Other countries have police in need of, of expertise. And we're going to come to an agreement about how to best impart wisdom and, and supply equipment you know, from Washington to, to other countries. There's no global hegemon or empire here. Exactly. And, and, and so that, that disavowal of the, you know, geopolitical power of the United States that was integral to, you know, the operation, operation of U.S. hegemony, of U.S. empire, and of uh, the Office of Public Safety, we can see as well playing out with the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, which is to say that it reduces policing. It, it, it tries to, to take all the, the politics out of policing and reduce policing to a kind of set of technical repertoires, even as at the same time, the politics are all over the place. On the one hand, the, the 1968 bill, the way it's written is in accordance with demands of, of racist Southern Democrats in the Senate. It gives money to J. Edgar Hoover's FBI for you know, Hoover's own, own purposes, which really don't have very much at all to do with you know, improving the, um, the, the policing techniques of, of poor municipalities across the country. And then most importantly, the LEAA creates this awkward bureaucratic system where the state governments have ultimate say over what types of aid they're going to request from Washington. And what that did was give more power to what were understood as more likely to be conservative state officials, governors and, and state legislatures, than the potentially more progressive municipal officials who actually were most close to, to the, the, the so-called crime problem. 
This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Verso just launched a new subscription service for readers to get ebooks and discounts every month. When you become a member of the Verso Book Club, you receive all of Verso's new ebooks every month, as well as one or more new books in the mail, plus 50% off all Verso books as long as you're a subscriber. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, all member tiers are now at a discount of 50%. Choose between three membership tiers. The Verso Reader tier is a digital subscription for every new Verso ebook each month. Verso Subscriber for one book sent to you in the mail every month and all Verso ebooks. And Verso Comrade for two to three books sent to you by mail every month plus all Verso ebooks. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, each option is 50% off for your first three months. At this momentous time for global politics, Verso will bring you radical voices that challenge capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, debate the future of the planet, and work towards real political change. Sign up for the Verso Book Club at versobooks.com slash book club. That's versobooks.com slash book club. You write about how police reformers working in the occupation governments of Japan and Germany, how they believe that centralized police forces were the bedrock of totalitarian government, which, you know, I think was probably true for Japan and Germany. But that was also inflected by American federalism and the belief that American federalism was a superior model, which, of course, ignored the fact that in the U.S. it was precisely the fragmentation of law enforcement through the federalist system that facilitated the authoritarian power of local police departments over black people. So there was this incredible belief in, in, in federalism in the U.S. And so police reformers who wanted the federal government to play a major role in transforming local police departments, one had to figure out a model that was in accord with their own federalist beliefs, but they also had to contend with local police chiefs who jealously guarded their independence. And even J. Edgar Hoover was staunchly against a centralized national police force which he was in charge of running the closest thing to that. How did the LEAA thread that needle and manage to dramatically increase the federal role in law enforcement while also increasing the power of local law enforcement? And how did what you call these, quote, myriad overlapping and interlocking jurisdictions, penal systems, and law enforcement agencies create the carceral state? Talking about law enforcement federalism in the current moment when there are federal law enforcement agents uh, being deployed to American cities is, is jarring, to say the least. Because in the 1960s, the fear of federal encroachment on law enforcement led to th- the somewhat bizarre and ineffective design of the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration. And when I say ineffective, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that it was um, ineffective at expanding 
the capacity of the carceral state and ultimately, as, as others have argued, leading to mass incarceration. But I do think it was ineffective at its stated goal of introducing the best type of um, technological advances and the, the kind of best practices that police reformers wanted to, to introduce across the country. Ultimately, reforms were taken up really unevenly and haphazardly precisely because Washington couldn't say to local police, you must take up Reform X. The design of the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration made that impossible. And part of the reason for that was that local law enforcement sheriffs, police chiefs, of course, saw federal intervention as a constraint on their prerogative, a constraint on their discretion. And likely in this moment of the civil rights revolution, a constraint on their ability to maintain the color line. Federal intervention was synonymous with civil rights after, certainly after 1964 and, and even earlier than that. And police were extremely worried about that. With the National Guard being sent into Little Rock. That's right. If you look at the, the details of the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act, one of the things it says is that police will not be held to the regulations on anti-discrimination that have been instituted in, into federal law in the 1960s in order to be eligible for, for federal funds. Police could discriminate in their employment and still be eligible for federal funds, unlike you know every other uh, institution in the United States, at least according to to the law that it, as it was as it was you know being devised in this period, sort of a revealing loophole in terms of what took priority. Exactly. I think that one of the things we need to understand about the war on crime was that it did empower police at the local level again unevenly, haphazardly, and not according to the 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 demands of some reformers who really wanted to promulgate you know, standards that, that would hold everywhere. But it did provide resources. It provided new technologies. It provided access to new forms of training. And in the book, I talk specifically about riot control training because it's, it's the most germane and actually has a, a, a national dimension that emerges in this period. Um, but this empowerment of police at the local level through through new resources and, and technologies, you know, is, is an interesting contrast with the the war on poverty. The war on poverty similarly is meant to empower at the local level, but of course, the war on poverty never really puts money in poor people's pockets. Um, it gives them access to you know certain forms of of uh, bureaucratic channels for modest forms of political organizing and, um, you know, new forms of things like job training um, and even even some more soft programs like, um, you know, etiquette and, and home ec types of training for young people. But the empowerment is not economic empowerment. The war on poverty doesn't do that. Meanwhile, the war on crime is empowering police. So the war on poverty you know, to the extent that it, it could, you know, try to address some of the problems that the civil rights movement 
was was up against um, you know not just the the voting the voting rights issue which of course is central and also is a, is a very localized problem but also the problems of lack of jobs inadequate housing poor education poor healthcare you know these are all really locally based problems and the war on poverty never really provides a thorough means to overcome them you have this really powerful analysis on why the war on crime succeeds where the war on poverty didn't, which is an analysis of of the scalar politics of the period, by, by which I mean the politics of scale, the, the, the various levels of government and power at which various things operate, and, and how that disadvantaged the left and you know popular left-wing organization while empowering the war on crime. You write that the left, quote, hoped to redistribute political power, but lacked the capacity to upend entrenched hierarchies, including the one that had downscaled political contestation to the local in the first place. The local was the terrain of police violence, inadequate school facilities, usurious white shopkeepers, and slumlords rat-infested overpriced housing, the very targets of black political mobilization in Harlem and elsewhere in this period aside from the demand for the vote. But it was not the terrain on which these injustices could be addressed. Fractions of capital and police tried to prevent federal-level interference that would endow actors at the scale with greater resources. This is a, a complex, but I think really important point for understanding how the last, I don't know, like 80-odd years of American history have gotten us to where we are today. How did the rise of the new police federalism fit into this the geographic politics of the emerging post-New Deal order political economy? I think that when we look at what the war on poverty failed to do and also what it was ultimately in many ways designed to do, we start to see some really strong continuities all the way through to the present. Because insofar as we can understand neoliberalism as downscaling and downstreaming risk and responsibility to individuals and families, the war on poverty does something very similar. The war on poverty does not try to overturn the political establishment. And when it even seems like it might be possible for some people who are empowered through the war on poverty, through maximum feasible participation, to feed some of that into electoral campaigns. Congress gets very nervous and, and, and starts thinking about ways to rewrite the legislation. So there is no real desire in the war on poverty to completely overturn the system. And instead, it's to make people at the grassroots, at, at these small scales, um, responsible for their own, you know, uplift and, and the transformation of their own lives. It's not a jobs program. It's not putting money in their pockets. Instead, it's making them, you know, responsible for addressing these problems. But these problems of, you know, unemployment or even street crime, you know, are not things that politically disempowered, disenfranchised, exploited people are able to solve on their own. It's just simply impossible. And so by retaining this architecture where people at the lowest scale are en ending up um, having to kind of fend for themselves, although with some 
modest forms of, of assistance through uh, you know, community programs that the War on Poverty provides, there's no possibility of, of really transforming the situation they find themselves in. And of course, what also is happening at this very moment is a real transformation in the broader you know, industrial economy and kind of spatial landscape of the United States at the very same time. And part of that comes out of some actual gains of, of the civil rights movement and their repudiation. How do we go from this, this new police federalism that you write about to DHS being created with bipartisan support after 9-11 to Trump today using DHS agents in general and border agents very much in particular as essentially a federal government police force that people didn't realize had already been created, like a latent, nascent federal police force that is being sent to occupy Democratic-run cities in a total seeming violation of the Federalist states' rights principles that conservatives supposedly hold so dear? Well, I think on the one hand, it shows us the hollowness of those supposed states' rights claims. And this this is something that I, I, I try to deal with in the book, which is you know, not not a huge revelation, just to say that those those claims are are again about maintaining racial prerogative among um, white elites. But more broadly, I would say that many of the law enforcement uh, experts and and leaders who I look at in the middle of the twentieth century would be quite surprised at what is happening right now, and maybe even frustrated because they would say, we had to work so hard to thread this bizarre needle so that we could get resources from Washington to fight an international communist conspiracy while not pissing off truculent local sheriffs in in various you know rural areas of the united states it w- It was a really challenging uh, task for them and and th- they sort of did the best they could. In, in this this political situation. Fast forward to 2020, and, and a lot of this doesn't seem to apply anymore. But I would say that what happened in the process of using law enforcement to fight the Cold War, both at home and abroad, was that law enforcement figures gained a certain amount of credibility, confidence, and cohesion. The Cold War gave them a unity of purpose and they started to use that to speak in relatively cohesive ways about what they wanted politically and, and, and really fiscally. By the time the uh, 1968 crime bill is a possibility, law enforcement leaders basically are, are you know, lobbying for it, you know, testifying before Congress, saying how important it would be for them to get this type of support from Washington. Johnson was very worried about pissing off the the sheriffs or, or the police chiefs. And that's why he, he would tread carefully, you know, and, and always say, we're not interested in creating a federal police force and the LEAA will not create a, a federal police force. But he was given some cover by the law enforcement leaders who gave full-throated support to federal anti-crime legislation. And this opens up a whole new realm of uh, intergovernmental relations where police increasingly loudly make demands on Washington 
for support. And so the 1994 crime bill, I think, is really the, the best best example of this, but, but there are others. In the 1994 crime bill, Bill Clinton addresses, you know, in, in the immediate aftermath, I think, of its signing, Bill Clinton addresses the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and he says, money is coming your way. I've, I've signed a bill. Uh, you know, basically, you know, you can rejoice at all the resources that are, are becoming available. And, and, and that re- those resources include uh, money to hire, you know, 100,000 police officers, which, which Joe Biden um, was, was very proud of at the time. When Bill Clinton addresses the International Association of Chiefs of Police, he wears a jacket that says America's Chief on the back. That type of thing would have been unthinkable to Lyndon Johnson because Lyndon Johnson was so worried about being seen as imposing uh, federal uh, conditions from Washington on local police. But between 1968 and 1994, police realized that they can get a whole lot of resources out of Washington without onerous conditions attached to them, without oversight attached to them. And I think that this, this you know, leads us into a, a really different situation from the 90s to the present um, f- the, as compared to what, what, we, what was going on in the 1960s. I also wanted to follow up to a reference you made about riot control, because that's a big part of your book. And among the tools that Byron Engel from the Office of Public Safety, among those to- the tools he recommended from, from overseas was CS or tear gas. And the story that you tell is really weird because CS's use as a weapon of war in Vietnam was justified by describing it as a domestic policing riot control tool when, in fact, it was first a weapon of war in Vietnam that was then integrated into domestic policing. At the same time, however, there's seemingly an, a totally kind of opposite development in policing, which is the emergence of SWAT teams, first developed by the LAPD, which draws on kind of a, a military special ops counterinsurgency model. How did these two different things, the the automatic weapon-toting armored vehicle driving special units, emerge out of a moment that was making such a point of emphasizing non-lethal policing methods like CS and also social uplift as a means of crime prevention, were the two phenomena at odds or more complementary than they might seem? That's a great question. They are both complementary and at odds. I think they're complementary or or even um, fruit growing from the same tree insofar as they're both um, deeply transnational in orientation. In, in the chapter of the book where I talk about SWAT, I show that the LAPD is, is really deeply enmeshed in transnational networks of policing uh, via the Office of Public Safety and, and other operations. And when Daryl Gates creates SWAT, it's consistent with, as, as he will claim, it's consistent with various uh, counterinsurgency theories that are operating where I dispute his own narrative of it is to say that, you know, he acts as if he's the first guy who ever thought um, that counterinsurgency theory and policing might have something to say to each other, whereas my whole book shows that they've had a lot to say to each other um, in many different ways for for quite some time before, you know, the light bulb goes off above his head. Daryl Gates being the police chief who succeeds Parker in L.A. Exactly. His relationship to Parker, I think, helps us to understand um, why SWAT 
is in some ways at odds with the economic uplift and non-lethal, quote-unquote non-lethal variant of, of counterinsurgency that I associate with the Office of Public Safety. William Parker is a police reformer, a, a professionalizer. He's, he's deeply concerned with making sure that police, the LAPD, are effective and that they don't engage in various you know, forms of, of graft and corruption at the same time as he is insistent that they need to maintain a, a kind of stranglehold over the uh, Mexican-American and African-American populations in the country. And, and I guess I mean stranglehold both literally and figuratively. He is not interested in social uplift of any kind. His basic position is it may be nice to alleviate, you know, poverty and misery of, of various forms in American society. It may be nice to alleviate racism. But these are going to be long, slow, drawn-out processes. And in the meantime, police must maintain order. And so there's no sense in even really talking in the same conversation about police activity and um, you know social uplift because the timescales are so different. Police need to affect an arrest right now. If that arrest is the result of or is is happening against the backdrop of of bigotry and racism, well, all that matters is is that the arrest is solving the immediate problem of, of disorder and leave the, the solving the problems of, of of racism and inequality to to other people besides police who are going to be working on a different timescale. The Office of Public Safety adopts some of this thinking, even as it is necessarily integrated with the development apparatus overseas, because of course it's part of the Agency for International Development. To go back to your question about tear gas, Byron Engel is instrumental in the adoption of CS, which is a, a very potent form of tear gas in the United States. And part of the reason that happens is because his buddy Arnold Sagalin is working for the Kerner Commission, and he invites Engel to testify before the Kerner Commission. In 1964 through 1967, in, in the, the uprisings and unrest, police were wanton in their violence toward, toward protesters, towards bystanders. And Engel watches this, and, and he, he says, you know, the way that this has incited tensions or inflamed tensions and um, made disorder last longer and be more destructive, this is what we've been trying to avoid overseas. Because overseas, we've been worried that aggressive police responses to political protest are just going to lead to communist revolution. So we've been trying to equip police overseas with tear gas. And the idea is use tear gas instead of, you know, shooting guns into crowds. You can disperse the crowd rather than just kill them. And, and if you do that, you're less likely to, to create a, a politically volatile situation. So he says this to the Kerner Commission, and the Kerner Commission makes its recommendation in its, you know, landmark publication to equip police with greater amounts of tear gas. The Kerner Commission's recommendations come out um, early in 1968, and the White House, the Department of Defense, the Department of Justice, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, they're already, even before the Kerner Commission report is published, they're already working on 
creating new riot control protocols on a national scale that will involve the introduction of CS or, or tear gas in, into the hands of, of police at, at the local level. And then the LEAA comes online starting later in 1968. And what does the LEAA do in its first year? It spends a whole lot of money on putting riot control gear in the hands of police around the country, including tear gas, including CS. What is this whole history of so-called non-lethal weapons? What does that all reveal about this moment when people are being so grievously injured in, in such huge numbers in both the U.S. and Chile and elsewhere with so-called non-lethal weapons like rubber bullets? I think the lesson is that so-called non-lethal weapons embody a search for a solution to the political problems of unrest through technical means. If we use non-lethal weapons, we being police, we might be able to control unrest and we might be able to make it so that crowds disperse and the problem will go away. But of course, the problem is a political problem. The problem of, you know, that has, has brought people into the streets since the killing of George Floyd is that people are politically mobilized, energized, and angry about racist policing, about the pandemic, about economic inequality, and various other factors. No non-lethal weapon can solve any of those problems. The best it can do if it's you know, used according to its manufacturer's specifications, which of course it rarely is, the best it can do is disperse a crowd and solve you know, a momentary tense situation. The crowd will regroup, the political anger will not dissipate, and in fact, if the weapons are used in an offensive or escalatory fashion, as I think they have been, they're going to make the crowds more angry, more boisterous, more numerous. And that's what we've seen over and over again over the past couple months. And I think that to go back to the, the question of where the, the U.S. war in Vietnam fits into all of this, what happened during the war was that the U.S. military and then, and then also the, the South Vietnamese forces used CS in combat operations. They used it not in a defensive fashion, not in a de-escalatory fashion, but in an offensive and escalatory fashion. The idea, of course, was that, you know, when fighting guerrilla warfare in a jungle, it can be very hard to, to locate and find the guerrillas. But if we saturate the, the zone with this extremely intense chemical that makes people choke and feel like they can't breathe, uh, the guerrillas might reveal themselves. They might flee out, in, out, out of their hiding spot. And then we can arrest them or we can you know, shoot them on, on site. This is how CS was used during the war. It was used to escalate. It was used as an offensive weapon, even as the Johnson administration was claiming that it was only being used in defensive situations, you know, to rescue hostages or to you know, control, control crowds in urban settings. And that, that just wasn't true, but it provided the, the justification for experimentation with, with CS that ended up boomeranging back home. And after 1968, all the way through to the present, 
we see CS, you know, in the in the arsenals of of police at at all scales, as as well as you know, of course, um, you know, the, the national guard. Meanwhile, CS is is rarely used in military operations. The U.S. military doesn't use CS according to its its own policies, beginning with a a ban that that emerged in the 1970s, and then and then finally a, a ratification of an international treaty in the 1990s. A key juncture in terms of understanding how we get to the policing system that we have today that you discuss is that this perceived failure of the war on poverty in particular and liberal do-gooder reform in general amid the rise of the war on crime made it so that, quote, intellectual perspectives on stopping crime transitioned from a focus on economic uplift to a more coercive focus on prevention of criminal acts, which coincided with a transition in the legal framework of policing from the control of status to the control of behavior. A broad consensus came to declare that the way to control crime was to raise the cost of crime, since deviant behavior had rational underpinnings. Explain this very misleading and very pervasive politics that discredited the war on poverty and and the very notion of, of solving root causes, what that all obscured about what actually happened, and how that in turn led to the sort of order maintenance broken windows and stop and frisk policies that have so shaped policing during the era of mass incarceration. Also, how, how did that in turn reflect this longer dynamic that we've spoken about in police reform debates, pitting root cause amelioration against crime suppression? I think the first thing to take note of is that, as I show in the book, these debates are happening on a global scale. Many of the intellectuals who are involved in debates about crime control within the United States and debates about whether poverty allevi- alleviation was successful or was, was actually um, you know, perhaps even leading to more crime, they're also talking about development in third world countries. They're talking about counterinsurgency and they're influenced by some of the ideas coming out of the more um, military-oriented think tanks like RAND. The idea that the war on poverty hadn't succeeded and therefore it was necessary to, you know, toss it out the window and instead just focus on controlling criminal behaviors relied on a mystification. And that mystification was that the war on poverty, you know, had ever really been given a lot of resources and and even the chance to succeed. As we've discussed, the, the war on poverty was not built to solve the problems of inequality in the United States within you know, the terms of, of, of the US racial compact and racial geography and the capitalist system as it operated in the United States. So you have a whole bunch of intellectuals who want to tear down the war on poverty. And the way they do it is by saying that the war on poverty didn't work. And that was true. But they want to claim that it had been well-resourced and tried. And it was a failure. And all it was doing was leading to more crime, more disorderly behavior, uh, drug abuse, drug addiction, and, and so on and so forth. And because this, this attempt at, at alleviating these problems had failed, 
let's just focus on solving the problems themselves through harsh police control and suppression. The idea was, as you mentioned, raise the cost of crime in order to dissuade people from engaging in criminal behaviors. And you saw this idea bandied about among people who are debating counterinsurgency as much as among law enforcement experts and uh, neoconservative intellectuals like James Q. Wilson of Harvard University. Ultimately, the orientation of policing toward maintenance of order, toward controlling low-level offenses lest they turn into more serious offenses, which you know, gets its name as, as the broken windows theory with when, when Wilson collaborates with George L. Kelling. This is an idea that has been on the lips of law enforcement experts and counterinsurgency experts for quite some time. And so in the last chapter of the book, I, I try to lay out this landscape and show some of these debates and show how actually unoriginal it was for Kelling and Wilson to, you know, make these, these types of claims in their, in their Broken Windows article in 1982, because they were actually just replicating ideas that had, had been circulating in this milieu that I'm looking at. Um, of course, they were quite successful in getting people's attention, and that, that article did change policymaking. But they didn't come up with something totally new in 1982. And when we look at, at, at counterinsurgency and we look at this transnational circulation of ideas around policing, we start to see the, the long trajectory of, of the development of these ideas. You write, quote, recorded crime rates increased because police were better prepared to discover and respond to a range of new as well as traditional crimes. Increased policing capabilities, including two-way radios and squad cars, enabled better coverage leading to additional interactions with the public and thus higher rates of police observation or public reports of lawlessness. New data collection protocols allowed crime to be more accurately reported to the FBI, giving the appearance of increasing crime levels in federal statistics. But you also write somewhat in tension with that, quote, magnifying resources for punishment and policing rather than other types of state social programming in a move toward risk management rather than risk eradication meant that everyday experiences with crime would predominate among people least able to affect the social conditions that gave rise to it. How does your analysis, the story you tell, fit with those of James Foreman Jr. or Michael Fortner in terms of the analysis of, of, of mass public, including mass black public support for the war on crime, responding to an explosion in actual violence in the streets? How do you, do you have an account of how state policies made and continue to make real disorder and violence on the ground that create a popular constituency for carceral policies absent the seeming possibility of any sort of social democratic reform, let alone revolution, with the carceral policies being the only solution basically on the menu? I think it's absolutely the case that the increased capabilities afforded to police by the war on crime made police interact differently with the public and changed the understanding both at local and national levels of what was occurring with crime. Con by constructing the problem. That's right. The introduction of the 
911 emergency number, which, as I show, is actually something that comes out of the experience of the Office of Public Safety in some ways. This allows a completely different relationship between the police and the public, because now the police can be called to come to a specific area very quickly in a way that was not as easily done beforehand. And oftentimes it brings police into private homes in new ways. What that means is that police are encountering types of behavior that register as crime in ways that they hadn't been doing before. And I think when we look at crime statistics over the sweep of the 20th century, without paying attention to some of these transformations, we, we could mislead ourselves. That is not to say that crime wasn't occurring or to say that crime was not a, a, an important factor in the lives of, of working people and poor people that, that shaped their experience of, of everyday life in their neighborhoods. But what policing and incarceration does is moves around and redistributes criminal activity. Certainly putting criminal activity into prisons so that it is no longer happening in a neighborhood uh, may make it feel like the you know, crime problem has, has been uh, removed, but of course it's just been displaced and, and, and the way that it gets counted statistically needs to be um, you know, th thought of in, in, in that way. Ultimately, I do think that police in this period became attuned to enforcement of low-level crimes in new ways that would register as paying attention to the behaviors associated with concentrated poverty and joblessness. And as far as the idea was that crime at a low level might create crime at a more serious level, that you know, vandalism or public urination might be the first step in, a, in an almost un, uncontrollably direct sequence toward more serious crime. And this, of course, is the thesis of, of Broken Windows. Police dedicate their resources, which are now growing in this period, towards controlling these behaviors. But ultimately, the behaviors, in large part, are simply signifiers of marginalized political and economic status. And what's so interesting about that for me is that the eradication by the Supreme Court of vagrancy laws was supposed to mean that people's status could no longer be a justifiable cause for police intervention. So now vagrancy laws go out the window across the 20th century thanks to the Supreme Court, and police are supposed to only focus on behaviors, not status. And yet status and behavior become basically melded together under the conditions of a decomposing political economic situation in the United States, you know, from the 1970s forward. The Office of Public Safety is ultimately shut down thanks to anti-imperialist criticism, if I remember correctly. But, but then foreign police programs continue under new guises through the LEAA. But I think most importantly, right, 
through the war on drugs in general and the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA in particular. And importantly, this time it was sold not as a way to stop subversion abroad, but to protect Americans from crime at home. And and you don't discuss it in the book, I don't think, but but I imagine that the war on terror since 9-11 has been, also been a powerful vehicle for global policing assistance. How is it that overseas policing has lived the second life through these permanent, if partially metaphorical, wars? It's absolutely true that the Office of Public Safety was closed down as a result of, of anti-imperialist activism. You know, the, 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 it, was, it was really the convergence of, of the peace movement, um, the, the, the anti-war movement, and, 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 and a focus on um, domestic police repression. They, they all came together and, and focused on the Office of Public Safety, and ultimately Congress shut down the Office of Public Safety, or as, as we would say in 2020, defunded the Office of Public Safety. This was a win for activists. And yet the, the legislation that shut it down had some loopholes. And the activists at the time, when they saw this happen, were shocked and, and angered to find out that there were loopholes written into this new legislative prohibition on overseas police assistance. And as you mentioned, the main one is around narcotics. And so the DEA in its you know first dozen or so years of activity ends up training as as many or maybe even more police as the office uh, from other countries as the office of public safety had done in its dozen or so years of operation and drug enforcement is a more specific set of operations the office of public safety again for the purpose of of controlling communism around the globe you know really tried to upgrade the, the full panoply of, of police uh, capabilities and operations. And those included uh, a, a, a control of narcotics. Byron Engel himself, after he left Japan, went to Turkey in the 1950s and worked on counter-narcotics operations in, in Turkey for a little while. So he had a long experience with counter-narcotics, and he thought he could maybe even save the Office of Public Safety when the, the writing was on the wall that it might get shut down. He tried to say, hey, look, we know a thing or two about counter-narcotics. But ultimately, yeah, it was the case that, that the war on drugs provided the opening to continued police assistance overseas dis despite a, a technical prohibition on it that is, is written into law. And that, that prohibition exists to this day in, in the law. But police assistance occurs under many guises today through many agencies, Department of Justice, Department of State. Um, you know, Homeland Security, Department of Defense, and private corporations as well. So it's happening now today to, to a much larger degree than it was happening during the, the, the time of the Office of Public Safety. What was different was that back then it was all sort of housed under one roof, overseen by Byron Engel, who had a direct line to Robert Comer, who had a direct line, you know, to Kennedy and Johnson. Now there is no single office providing oversight, and many of these programs happening around the globe, um, you know, could even be completely redundant. A training operation coming from, from the Department of State might be duplicated by something coming from the Department of Defense six months later. Um, and, and we don't even really know a, a huge amount about all of this that's going on. Occasionally, you know, the, the Government Accountability Office will, will do an investigation or Congress will do a little bit of an investigation. 
Department of Defense sometimes gets pressed to be a little bit more revealing about what it's doing by by members of Congress. But it's it's a huge huge a huge amount of resources being dedicated to training and equipping police around the globe today. And the mission is not exactly as singularly focused as it was in the 60s as you know with with this ideological component of of constraining the the, the communist movement globally now it, it it has all sorts of purposes the primary ones are narcotics and terrorism though lastly what does the story you tell about the nefarious consequences the nefarious and sometimes totally unintended consequences of reform reveal about the past 6 years of police reform efforts that took off after and amid the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests. How can we identify the difference between radical reforms and system-stabilizing ones? And what does that, in turn, reveal about this current shift in movement emphasis towards defund police, a move from accountability and training to attacking this bedrock issue, these bedrock issues of the size and scope of policing? I think that the history of police reform through the 20th century was exactly as you say, system stabilizing. And it was also meant to, you know, expand capacities and capabilities, introduce new new technologies and resources. Police reform ultimately was often introduced, you know, in a top-down fashion. And that that irked many officers. They didn't like being forced to do certain things by their commanding officers, both in terms of you know, new, new requirements for training, which obviously we know that, especially when it comes to these, you know, so-called, uh, you know, sensitivity or, or implicit bias trainings, they don't take them seriously, even if they, they were to be effective, which is a separate question, but officers don't like them, don't take them seriously. And, and yet officers are, are quite happy to, to take the, the new technologies and the new resources that co- become available through, through reform. For, for police at the top, for the chiefs, the leaders, they're worried about police legitimacy. They want to reform in order to enhance the legitimacy of, of police, and in part because they think that a legitimate police force is likely to um, you know, have interactions with the public where the public listens to what the police are saying, abides by the commands of the police, and so forth. In the rank and file, I just don't think that there is much evidence of, of an agreement that police need to be reformed or should be reformed in those ways. I think police want their prerogative, their discretion to be left intact, and they will continually find ways to pay lip service to, to the reform that, that's coming from the top and not really change their, their actual operations in, in any way. And, and in fact, because policing on an everyday level, you know, at the patrol level, policing has to has to include discretion because police encounter surprising and unpredictable situations, confusing situations um, all the time. And so they have to kind of improvise on the street. But their improvisation is always backed up, you know, by non-negotiable coercive force. That's the essence of policing is that however they decide to respond, use their discretion to, to respond, use their even creativity to respond to a given situation at the end of the day or at the end of the encounter, non-negotiable coercive force remains intact. And reform is never going to change that. And in, for, in fact, reform is, is ill-equipped to 
standardize despite its own its own dreams of standardization it's ill-equipped to standardize something that that has to remain um, highly discretionary so i agree that in the present moment these calls for defunding the police for reducing the scale and scope of police are absolutely necessary to get us out of this discourse that that you know really came came from the, the, the Obama administration's initiatives of, of police reform that, that proposed that better training, uh, new technologies, and so forth were going to solve the, the, the problems of racial injustice. There's no evidence that, it, that it's, it's really true. And um, there's also very little evidence that, that police are even all that interested in, in solving a lot of these problems. Certainly some are. In some cases, there have been some improvements. But on the whole... I don't think we see the improvements that the Obama administration promised, and that's why we're seeing the protests that are so vigorous, but also specific in their demands. Well, Stuart Schrader, thank you very much. Thank you. Stuart Schrader is Associate Director of the Program in Racism, Immigration, and Citizenship at John Hopkins University, where he is also a lecturer. He is the author of Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing, from University of California Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the police, the judiciary, and the administration are not deputies of civil society itself, which manages its own general interest in and through them. Rather, they are office holders of the state whose purpose is to manage the state in opposition to civil society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. You can also find us on Facebook. Please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever, also rate and review us. Nice reviews ostensibly introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling your friends that you listen to the show like the show that they should listen and like the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and going strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.